All right. Good morning. In my new book, Disciple Making is a Team Sport, I use this illustration. I'm just kidding. I'm not writing a book. But I did write this illustration, okay? A football is a team sport, and that means you have multiple players on your team competing against multiple players on the opposing team. And there's a lot more to it than that. I mean, there's a specific field to play. You got four 15-minute quarters with a rest in the middle, and uh, but that's a good place to start off with. Uh, years ago, uh, most football teams did this exercise called jumping jacks. Anybody remember those? Yeah, 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 yeah. So don't try this at home without a certified CrossFit trainer, okay? But jumping jacks look like this. Whew, I'm tired. That was also one of my dance moves in college, the disco era, you know. Uh, but we always did our jumping jacks at the beginning of football practice. Uh, it helped warm up our muscles, prevent injuries. Uh, we used to say things when we did jumping jacks. We used to count out loud like this. One, two, three, one. You know, that's great. But you know what we never said while we were doing jumping jacks? We never said, I'm playing football. No, football players knew there's a difference between warming up and actually playing on the field. Or during the game, uh, maybe your team would come off the field. If you were on the offense or defense, you'd come off the sidelines and, and, and you'd kneel down, you know, to rest and drink some Gatorade or something like that. And we'd talk on the sidelines about what was going on out on the field. But you know what you would never hear us say? You'd never hear us say to each other, wow, you really nailed that kneeling down. Man, you didn't lose your balance. You took off your helmet all at the same time. Way to go. High five. And you'd never hear us say, man, did you see me drink that Gatorade? Man, it's orange. I took 10 gulps in one breath. I didn't spill any of it. Way to go. That's playing ball. No, we knew better. And we can smile about that because warming up, resting, hydrating is part of the preparation but it's not actually playing ball. The same goes for making disciples. There's a difference between actually making disciples and preparing for it. We'll do more of that later. Talk on that later. But for now, our immediate context is Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. And the, the immediate context is Jesus has had a number of post-resurrection uh, appearances to his followers, and then followers have been invited to meet him on a mountain in Galilee, so they're being obedient to him. Uh, I'm going to assume some familiarity with these post-resurrection events, uh, and I'm just going to quickly mention uh, these ten. Our message today picks up from last week where we looked at the resurrection. Between the empty tomb and the mountainside appearance uh, to many of the disciples, we have the following ten events. Now, remember, Matthew's account is much more succinct than the other three Gospels, so this is a, a harmonization of all of Jesus' uh, appearances uh, as recorded in the four Gospels. Now, this list was compiled several years ago by Dr. Elizabeth uh, Mitchell. This first slide shows Jesus' resurrection appearances on Sunday. First was to Mary Magdalene, and then to the other women who had previously gone to the tomb and found it empty, and then to Peter, and then to two followers of Jesus on the road to Emmaus, and then to the 11 disciples minus Thomas. Uh, the next slide shows the appearances that happened eight days later, then over the next few weeks, and, 
and finally with the disciples when Jesus ascended. And the appearance that we're looking at this morning takes place not long after Jesus appeared to seven of the disciples, uh, we read in, read in John 21, uh, at the Sea of Tiberias. Sea of Tiberias is also known as the Sea of Galilee, and it's about 75 miles north of Jerusalem. So if you have your Bibles, if you're not already there, turn to Matthew 28, starting with verse 16. Here at the end, Matthew does a great job of summing up his gospel. Actually, he sums up kind of the whole big reason Jesus came. The passage about all that's important, it's the big picture of the whole. We could say it this way. Jesus gives his all to us all so that we all stay on mission. Now, there's only five verses to look at, and so here are the two parts to the message this morning. First part is called the start of it. Second, the all of it. So let me start off with just the first two verses, and we're going to see how this unfolds. Verse 16. Now, the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him. But some doubted. Let me make some observations and deductions. By using the phrase the 11, Matthew is emphasizing something here. He's reminding us that there was a betrayal. And Judas is not with the disciples anymore. Though Judas grieved his own rejection and betrayal of Jesus, ultimately he did not repent and return, but took his own life. And for the 11, the loss of a fellow disciple was acute. In fact, probably traveling to Galilee, the place where Jesus, Judas usually walked in the group was empty, and that absence lingered in the hearts of the 11. Next, though there's no specific location name for this mountainous area, it was known to the disciples. In fact, Jesus had three times already directed the disciples to go meet him there. Once he did it before he was crucified, back in Matthew 26. Two weeks ago, we saw uh, the angels direct the, the women at the tomb uh, to go tell the disciples to, to meet Jesus at the uh, mountain in Galilee. And then Jesus himself, when he appeared to the women as they were on the way to tell the disciples. And verse 17 is kind of interesting. Given the number of appearances Jesus had made to the 11, they're, they're probably not hesitant or doubting that it was Jesus who was before them. So I stand in the company of many who believe that there are more than the 11 on this mountainside. Logically, there's no reason for Jesus to go all the way to Galilee to have a meeting with just the 11. He had met them twice in Jerusalem already. If he wanted to have a meeting with just them, he could have done it in Jerusalem as he had done it before. So I believe Matthew is focused on the 11 disciples who are in the midst of about 500 other disciples, brothers and sisters in the faith that have come to see and to listen to Jesus. I believe that this is the gathering that the Apostle Paul spoke of in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 6 and 7, which reads like this. Then he, meaning Jesus, appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. So 
this larger group would most certainly have followers who had not seen the resurrected Jesus yet. Thus, this meeting was for a conspicuously larger crowd of Christ followers, and, and Galilee was familiar for some of them, and it was a safer place to meet. Also, it's a more fitting location for the message that Jesus is going to give them, and here's what I mean. The disciples and other believers who are predominantly Jewish obediently met Jesus in a region that is predominantly Gentile, Galilee. Pertinent history for this region goes back to Judges 1. In the conquest of Canaan, this area was given to Israel's tribes of Naphtali, Zebulun, and Issachar. These three tribes didn't drive out the Amorites and the Hivites whom they originally defeated. Rather, they just kind of settled in among the remnants of these Gentile nations. The Gentile nations grew over the centuries, and by the first century, the full name of the region around the Sea of Galilee was called the Galilee of the Nations, or Galilee of Gentiles. The word Galilee actually means district. So this area was the district of the nations, or the district of Gentiles. And later it was just shortened to Galilee. So here's how it might feel for us if we were there together with Jesus. Try to imagine yourself as maybe one of these 500 believers. First of all, we don't all know each other here. Uh, we're men and women from a culture that view each other quite differently than we do now. And we can't just gloss over the hurt and the confusion of Judas's betrayal. Judas betrayed all of us when he betrayed Jesus. This is undoubtedly mixed with some anxiety and some grief. There's been loss and threats and uncertainty in all of our lives. So hesitancy or doubt is quite likely. Yet, there would be a heightened anticipation also. I mean, we've not all seen Jesus yet, but we've heard, we've heard Jesus described. Uh, he's the same, but somehow strangely, maybe gloriously different. Additionally, we're standing on a fairly remote mountainside of a region that is not home for the vast majority of us. All of this is situated in an ethnically diverse area, which in the close, more inhabited towns also includes the harsh presence of Roman military. That's the backdrop. That's the, the start of it, and it's just that backdrop what makes Jesus' first words so amazing, so powerful. So we know worship has taken place now, not in a temple, but rightfully around Jesus. And it's likely that we've worshipped Jesus on that mountain uh, where he first appeared, but he wasn't right in front of us then. So let's read when Jesus, is, Jesus approaches us even closer. Maybe we encircle him. He's now so close that we can see the scars in his hands when he raises them to tell us all of it. Verse 18, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. And behold, I am with you always 
even to the end of the age. To summarize the, the all of it, all of the promised life, we have our responsibility in the promised life sandwiched between Jesus' authority and His presence for eternity. Now we know Jesus didn't call the disciples, uh, all of His followers, to this mountainside, a two-day journey from Jerusalem for a 30-second sermon. So we recognize that Matthew here is, is just pointing out what he really wants us to focus on. So, did you hear it? For us today, as with this mountainside of people, uh, we're caught in the grinder between malevolent cultural authority Spiritual authority, military authority, political authority. To say to us, Jesus says, I've been given all authority in heaven and earth. So what does that look like? That all authority phrase reminds me of something we said back in the second sermon of this Life of Promise series. Preaching on the temptation of Christ about 11 weeks ago, I said, Jesus refused to be the exalted ruler without first becoming the crucified Savior. Jesus would not wear the crown before He bore the cross. But the cross is behind Him now. So Jesus stands before them as the exalted Savior King, and He declares His sovereignty. All authority in heaven heaven and earth has been given to me, he says. And Jesus' loving, sacrificial, and yes, sovereign authority is the basis for everything that follows. Uh, David Platt summarizes the themes and the arenas of Jesus' authority like this. He's got a list here. I like the list. He says, Jesus is universal Lord and Savior, over nature and nations, over demons and disease, over sin and death, over our lives, over every life. That's what his authority looks like. And it's his authority that compels us. Jesus' universal authority over us empowers us to do, accomplish His universal, universal mission through us. And that's a great transition, pointing to verse 19. Jesus' authority compels us to make disciples as we go through life. And here it becomes obvious that Matthew did not end his gospel with the fact that Jesus is king. If that was all we wanted, he wanted to say, he could have stopped at the resurrection. Matthew's gospel could have ended at verse 9 of this chapter with the women, something like this. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings, and they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him, saying, The king lives. Fade to black. But Jesus' kingship is not the final message. There is more, right? Because uh, it's not just about Jesus' kingship. There is Jesus' kingdom. Jesus' kingdom, Jesus' kingdom is still growing, and we're a part of that. And the kingdom will not be fully consummated 
until Jesus returns, and there is so much to do until that happens. And here's where my opening illustration comes back in to the message. You know, many churches lose sight of all that's required when it comes to making disciples, when it comes to doing what Jesus said to do. When it comes to making disciples, many believers and even whole churches from the leadership on down, they think that doing a few good things, having some helpful activities, is making disciples. But it's not. Here's what I know. I'll just pick on me. Me preaching a sermon is not making disciples. Me listening to a sermon is not making disciples. Me leading a small group or attending a small group is not making disciples. Me worshiping or me leading a congregation in worship is not me making disciples. Me sharing the gospel is not making disciples. Me tithing is not making disciples. My point is, that's not even a complete list. And everything there is just part of preparation for making disciples. And we get into problems when we compartmentalize activities in the life of faith. We get into problems when we get selective or reductionistic in the life of faith. We get into problems thinking that learning a few things, saying a few things, doing a few things is making disciples. It's not. Making disciples is a total life commitment to everything Jesus did to make disciples who will make disciples. What Jesus is saying here is be a lifelong learning believer who makes lifelong learning believers. Jesus is saying, you be me to whomever, wherever, whenever, however I did and direct you to for the rest of your born days. That's a loose southern translation of that passage. When Jesus says go to all the nations, that's to whomever, the wherever, the whenever he directs. Basically, go far, go long. Go now. Keep going. Don't stop. When Jesus says, baptizing them, teaching them to obey, that's the however that he directs. Let's look at those two elements of however for just a minute. When Jesus says, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, notice that word, notice that the word name is singular. It's not the word names, plural. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. There's three persons, all one God. And the how is not just dunking people underwater and saying this Trinitarian phrase, this liturgical phrase. Baptize means having them publicly identify their whole life and purpose with the triune God. It's to join in fellowship and lordship with the Godhead. And baptizing also means having them to identify their whole life and purpose as an active part of the church, local, universal. Now, when Jesus says, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, that recognizes that, that Jesus has obeyed and fulfills, fulfilled God's law. But it's more than that. Jesus is setting his whole life as an example to be followed. 
He's saying that what he said and did and thought and desired in his life is to be embodied by all of his disciples. So for us today, this isn't just having Christian ed classes, which are great, sermons, which are great, small groups and service projects, those are great too. Making disciples is utilizing the whole body of Christ to bring about every aspect of, of our being, our words, our actions that bringing them into alignment and in replication of who Christ is and what he did, of Christ in us. And we do that so that the same comprehensive alignment with and replication of the life of Christ is shared with others and occurs in others. This is transformation, not information. It's relational, not just intellectual. It's doing, not just being. It's sacrificing, not just receiving. It's all of us, not just some of us. Here's a helpful corrective that kind of gets at the thrust of David Platt's book entitled Radical. If you haven't read that, it came out probably 10 years ago, maybe more. Making disciples is not a part of the American dream. It's instead of the American dream. That can be convicting for those of us who call America our home. I'll say it this way. Our Pledge of Allegiance may declare the aspiration of one nation under God, but make no mistake, America is not the kingdom of God. No nation is. And I love America, but as with every other nation, the vast majority of its motives and manifestations of what it stands for falls terribly short of the kingdom of God. This Thanksgiving, let's pray like Jesus. Let's pray like Jesus for the kingdom of God and for the will of God in every nation. Because anywhere on this earth, us doing anything less than what Jesus did and asked of us falls short of making disciples. Jesus is the master disciple maker, but he's also king. And about now, I'm hoping you feel overwhelmed. I mean, seriously. If you're starting to feel overwhelmed, then you're starting to realize that making disciples is humanly impossible for us. That's why Jesus promises himself to us. Jesus promises to be with all of us in order for him to make disciples of us and through us. Jesus promises himself to, to be with disciple makers for as long as disciple making is still the mission and then we know we'll be with him for eternity too. At this point in Matthew's gospel, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit had yet to be fully given. At this point, no New Testament letters had been written. At this point, the church had not been formed, but Pentecost is coming, and Jesus knows it. So as we wrap up this season, I want us to look back at the start of Matthew's gospel. I want us to see a messianic promise made about 400 years before Jesus' birth. And the promise is that of the prophecy in Isaiah that is being fulfilled in the birth of Jesus. It's a prophecy that had a double fulfillment, one near the time that the prophecy was given, but it's also prophetic of Jesus' birth. In Matthew 1, uh, verses 23 and 23, we have an angel of the Lord speaking to Joseph 
who will be Mary's husband, speaking to him in a dream, explaining Mary's pregnancy to him, saying this, verse 21, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, prophet Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So which is it? Is it Jesus or is it Emmanuel? The answer is both. What we have is an angel of the Lord putting together the two names as a fulfillment of this 700-year-old prophecy from Isaiah. The name Jesus means Jehovah is salvation. God is salvation. And the name Emmanuel means God with us. What the angel is saying at the beginning of Matthew is that Jesus, God who is salvation, is Emmanuel, God who is with us. And what Jesus is saying here at the end of Matthew is that he, as God's son, came to be with us and made our salvation sure. Can I get an amen? Amen. So the one who came down to us loves us enough to die for us, to save us. He is in charge of us. The one who died and rose again is with us, for us, in us, and over us. And today, we have the full indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We have the complete Scripture the church has been formed. Pentecost has come. And Jesus knows that too. So by way of application, you, you've heard this question before. What would Jesus do? That's a very reflective question on Jesus' life. But maybe a better and more active question for us now is what does Jesus do through you? Or maybe if you're wanting to remove obstacles that could get in the way, you could ask this question of yourself. What keeps us from obeying all and receiving all that Jesus promised us? I say, let's follow Jesus as men and women, disciple makers of every tongue and tribe and nation, to be all that Jesus is, to be all of Jesus now, so that many may be all of Jesus to others. Let's pray. Father, we recognize that uh, your plan to your plan to redeem us, that was in the works before you spoke the first thing into creation. You and your Son and your Spirit in perfect unity and harmony and fellowship decided before you created anything that you would save those that you would call, those that you would elect. You would save, not based upon any merit that we have, but purely as a result of the righteousness of your Son who would come and die for us. Jesus, God who saves us. Father, thank you that Jesus is also Emmanuel, that he is God with us, that as accurately recorded in Scripture, we've got a picture of a life that you've asked us to emulate. 
and not just for our own benefit, but for the benefit that, that you, for anybody that would, you would direct across our path or wherever you would send us, whenever you would send us. Father, I pray that, that we take this uh, mission seriously, uh, that even with the remain just a month and a half left in this year, that we would finish strong. That what you've asked us to do, even though this is a time of celebration and gratitude and, and acknowledging your son's first coming, that you have already been at work in our lives in ways that, um, that strengthens us, that restores us, that transforms us. And Father, I pray you would continue that work and may our hearts be grateful, not just for what we have received, but what you will do in us for others. In Christ's name, amen.